0: Face the final frontier. These are the voyages of Death by DVD. Boldly going nowhere. Death by DVD does Star Trek three. Search for Spock. Would you look at that? Guess who just beamed in all the way from the back door?
1: Do you ever fantasize
0: about listening to Hank?
1: You are listening to Death by DVD. I am Hank, the world's greatest, your host. And on this episode, we continue Star Trekking with Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, 1984, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Now, this whole mess started as what was going to be a three-part series. Star Trek 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. Obviously, at this point, that is not how it is happening. Who knows how long it will continue on for. I mean, only six films. We're only doing the original six. But that could still take some time. And I think it was neglected to be mentioned that this was a request. That's right. It was asked of us to do. A cool cat named Keith sent us a message on the website, which you can too, www.deathbydvd.com. Just scroll to the bottom, or you can hit the little chat window, suggest a movie, feedback, however you're feeling. But Keith said he wanted to hear Death by DVD's thoughts on Star Trek, and here we are. Search for Spock. I hope you're happy, Keith. I hope you're happy. So, here we are. Looking for Spock who died oh. in the last film, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Where do we begin? I guess the beginning would be the best place. Let's just jump in. When talks began for Star Trek III, the studio reached out to Leonard Nimoy with wishes of bringing Spock back. Now, let's go back to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Harve Bennett, producer, writer, long time involved with the entirety of the series... He went to Leonard Nimoy during the filming of that movie and asked him to come up with a way to possibly preserve Spock if there ever needed to be a reason to bring him back. And Nimoy came up with the mind meld, the whole remember with Dr. Bones scene. Sorry, Doctor, I have no time
0: to discuss this logically.
1: Remember. So thankfully because of that, there is a link and a way established that we possibly can bring back Spock. And by naming the movie Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, it's presumptuous. I feel... To guess, at some point in time, we're gonna find him, if we're looking for him, that there is an inkling of hope that the treasured and beloved Captain Spock still exists. Or else why the fuck would you name the movie that, right? I mean, who am I to presume something like that, but it seems it was named pretty obviously for, for those reasons, at least to give a little bit of hope to the audience that felt jaded and pushed away from the last movie because they fucking killed Spock. <laughs> they, they killed Spock, so, I mean, you know a great deal of your fan base has got to be pretty upset over this. Next logical step, well, fuck it, let's bring him back. Sorry, guys. He's coming, he's coming back. Search for Spock, you know, it's all in the title. What, what's in a name, right? Everything. So the studio reaches out to Leonard Nimoy, and you know, they, they want to have talks about bringing him back. They want to bring Spock back. And Leonard Nimoy was really cool with the idea, but he had a condition, and this condition was a fairly large one because his condition was, I'd like to direct the picture. So you can't make a movie called The Search for Spock without, at some point, Spock. But what happens when this guy wants to direct the movie? And that wouldn't seem unusual. You know, it doesn't seem like a really big problem. Leonard Nimoy is fairly well-known at this point in time. It's 1984, I'd say, much more than fairly well-known. He's a very successful talent. He has proved himself, uh, proved? Or is it proven? Or proven? Or (laughs) proof? He has done a lot in his life to show that he's got some talent. Look, we found a way around it. And he wants to direct the movie. Now, despite the fact that he has never done that before, this would be a directorial debut. Sure, that would be scary to his studio, but that isn't exactly the problem. Then head of Paramount, Michael Eisner who later would go on to become you know, Lord Emperor of Disney, that Michael Eisner, he was head of Paramount at the time period. He was under the understanding that Leonard Nimoy hated Star Trek. Eisner had heard, and it was a rumor at the time period, that Nimoy insisted on Spock dying in Part 2 so he could finally be done with it all, and that he actually had it in his contract that Spock had to die. Something that Leonard Nimoy greatly denied all of his career afterwards, of course, and says it was nothing more than a rumor. But nonetheless, Eisner wasn't exactly pleased with the idea, but obviously at some point some sort of light had to be shown on the situation and Leonard Nimoy got the gig. So it comes down to the fact of maybe he did hate the character, maybe in hindsight he did make those decisions and it wasn't the best decision at the time. It really doesn't matter and it specifically doesn't play a part into what we're going to be talking about here in the long run because Leonard got the job and he directed the movie. So that's the history. It's speculative of if he hated Spock, but does it matter? I mean, really, at this point, doesn't matter. The answer is no. A, re- a resounding no, in fact. So at this point, the mission becomes connecting the pieces and sort of sewing this movie into the others. How can Spock live again and much, much more? Maybe too much more. Now, when it comes to the Star Trek series, the original series at least, there was never a plan at the end of each movie to continue to make another movie, so they were just kind of running and gunning each time. Get alone, were they trying to make a series that had an overall arc between every single movie that connected them solidly? So, the task at hand is a fairly large one for Leonard Nimoy, and though I think the movie is very muddled, to say the least, I still really enjoy it. But, So much goes on, it ends up defeating a lot of the desired emotion that I feel was intended for the majority of the movie. I still think it works, though. Don't get me wrong. Of this movie, Leonard Nimoy has said that he wanted it to be very operatic and emotional and very broad. And I feel in a sense he was aiming for something like, like, Wagner. Like, triumphant, thundering, epic, masculine, but still emotional. And honestly, the finished product is much more like an Italian opera, a a romantic... And I don't mean that in the in the sense of love, a romantic affair that focuses deeply on relationships, death, life, uh, philosophical concepts like life after death and rebirth, and so on and so forth. It's got the touches of the more, vulgarian, if if that's a term we're gonna use, that the vulgarian war filled epics about honor and the gods. But unfortunately for me, some of that aspect sort of displaces me emotionally. I like it. But not exactly for the story that we're trying to tell, and rather the story that's being told to us, because I'm not trying to tell a story outside of, you know, this episode. But we'll get to that soon. We'll get more to the displacement soon. Death, resurrection, friendship, love. We have some very, very heavy themes in this movie. A lot of stuff for Nimoy to handle. In the last film, the most beloved character of the series was killed, uh, and it would be like making a Winnie the Pooh movie and shooting Tigger at the end of it. Oh, bother. What are you supposed to do? What do you do after that? I mean, you carry on with the series, you continue on with the mission, or you can just bring him back, right? And that's pretty much where the movie begins. Tone-wise, at least. And to carry that, you've got this massive sweeping score by James Horner, and this movie came out in 1984, just a little while before James Cameron's Aliens, and they are remarkable pieces. I can't help but wonder, well, not so much wonder, James definitely, Horner, reused some of this for the Aliens score. It's very theatrical, and if that says anything to you about the nature and what they were trying to do on screen, that really fits with Leonard Nimoy's whole feeling of wanting an operatic, emotional, and broad piece. Because the soundtrack, man, it's triumphant, but at some points I feel it's almost distracting to what the emotional aspects of our characters and their development their arcs and the journey they're going on is supposed to be. This movie does really differ in tone. After some footage from the last film, Wrath of Khan, connecting the last sequences of that film to this, this sweeping, massive James Horner's score, we see the battle-damaged Enterprise. We are directly in the aftermath of the wrath of Khan, literally. Here, we're reminded of the humanity of our heroes. Spock is dead, Kirk is hurt, but he is still the captain, and he is still leading the ship. We kind of see here that these guys aren't superheroes, and I think for the longest time, the show and the previous movies, Kirk and company is sort of regarded as... godly, as, as deities, that they are the greatest at what they do, and they're almost superhuman, and here we are, are very painfully reminded that they are human. I mean, and not everybody, Spock wasn't, but the ones left on board are human. But I don't mean that in a sense of I'm trying to differentiate things, I'm just using it as an overall term, because, uh, I don't know what else to say, alien, I guess? I don't know, The, the semantics like this don't matter, back to Star Trek three. The search for spock they have feelings they have weaknesses and everyone has been deeply weakened by the death of spock something interesting is kirk's personal log we're introduced to the crew while we hear a narration of captain kirk's personal log his diary USS enterprise captain's personal log with most of our battle damage repaired we're almost home yet i feel uneasy And this is something new to the series. There have been captain's logs, there are medical logs, there are engineer logs. All of those are official business. All of those are for Starfleet. All of those are for progressing space and science and pretty much duty. Duty logs. It's work. This is something personal. And it's useful because it allows us to see inside of Captain Kirk. It lets us understand him. And it also sets the mood for what can only be called a somber introduction. We begin the movie with a feeling of crisis and loss. Everyone, including the Enterprise, is in pain. And then, abruptly, the mood changes. We jump into space and we get to meet the heavy for this picture. And this, I believe, I used the word earlier, is where things become a little muddled. A whole eight minutes into the movie, Now, writer Harve Bennett wanted to write an adventure film, and he certainly did, but one filmed with lots of clutter. In the first movie, we briefly see some Klingons, but not since the original series have they really been explored or have they really been mused. Enter Krug, played by Christopher Lloyd in a completely non-comedic role. So let's pause here to talk about Christopher Lloyd for a little bit. This is something I really, really love about this movie that I, it seems a lot of people have a problem with and don't like. Christopher Lloyd is a very oddball cast. Before this, he was really mostly known for comedic roles. Of course, he had done One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In fact, his role as Max Tabor, 1975, was his very first role. He'd done acting gigs, he'd done feature films before, but Taxi was really what he was known for. The following year he would play Doc Brown in Back to the Future 1985, but this was really out of the normal casting. But well, let's look at who the director is here. It's Leonard Nimoy. This is a man who no one should ever have spoken to about. You know, who would have the balls to come up to Leonard Nimoy and bring up typecasting? This guy knows the pain and woes of typecasting, and I feel his choice of not just this choice, choices in general of of his cast for this movie was defending that was even defending his own honor as a character actor who consistently was typecast as the same consistent character over and over and over again no matter what the job was he went out on a limb because it's not only christopher lloyd donning the klingon makeup but you've got john larroquette also yes john larroquette you know the narrator from the texas chainsaw massacre
0: yeah On the afternoon of August 18th, 1973, five young people in a Volkswagen yeah, van ran, ran out of gas on a farm man. road the in John Larrick Texas. John Larrakat's amazing, I'm being very the sarcastic morning, the one survivor, couldn't Sally Hansch, He's done a up thing up or two side. more than
1: this in the Texas A.C. But there's Sally another surprising role that I will bring up when we get to it. Well, a surprising cast role. I mean, it's not like the role is surprising, but it's who's playing the character. Again, I don't know why I spend time getting into semantics when I'm fairly certain you probably understood what I meant to say the first time around. But there is something absolutely terrifying about Christopher Lloyd's performance, and he is a very charismatic actor. He has such a deep persona, and I don't know much about him as a guy. I don't know how he was trained. I don't know if he was theatrical or, you know, if he studied specific types of method acting. But what I do know, what I can comment on, is his portrayal of this fierce Klingon leader. It's very drastically different from, of course, what we've seen previously of the Klingons, and I say we, but I have to bring this up. The first two episodes, it was noted, so it needs to be noted on this one. I'm a newbie. I don't know anything about Star Trek. This is my first trek through the stars. And here and there, I've been going back and and watching episodes of the original series, a Klingon episode here and there to get a bearing of who they are and what they stand for. Wrath of Khan, for example went back and watched those episodes because it may or may not have been helpful to the composure of that episode. But we don't really know much about the Klingons. They are a a fresh slate. We know animosity between them and the Federation. We know that there is sort of a demilitarized zone between them and the Federation. All this jibber-jabber. We don't know who they are and what they stand for. So Star Trek three, The Search for Spock, opens up a really cool doorway for us to explore what the Klingons are what they stand for all this and that but unfortunately I mentioned this just a little while ago I don't know if this was the story to do that but I also mentioned I really like what we see and this will make things conflicting as we continue discussing this for me you know having to discuss this and still try and be fair with my opinion on the matter yeah I don't want to just I don't like the movie because these things don't mix for me and I just don't I don't like the tone It just doesn't fit the other tone. Well, that's no excuse. It might not fit the tone, but it is presenting itself a new tone. And when we move into the movie after this, the tone that was set in this movie, to keep using the word tone, they all come together. Everything works out. I think one hand washes the other, and some pieces of the series are weaker than other pieces in the series, but by no means necessary am I saying this is the weakest in the series. Because that's the next movie. And that probably isn't the only time I'll make that joke on this episode.
0: (laughs) Alright,
1: enough on Christopher Lloyd. Back to the movie. The way the character is introduced, Christopher Lloyd's character, Krug, is specifically brutal, and it paints a picture not only of the Klingon ways, but their system of honor, and, and really what they stand for. But how terrifying this villain is going to be, I think most importantly. The Genesis device from the last movie comes into play again. And this is another aspect of the film that begins to cramp it. So, like I said a little while ago, aside from the original series, the Klingons have really not been expanded. And that really makes them great heavies. In a shocking moment that truly defies our bad guy, Krug kills his own lover out of the necessity of honor. She saw something that was only for his eyes the Genesis plans. Now, what's happening here is she has brokered. Broke it. Erred? Damn, I get stuck on the easiest things. She has worked a deal out with some sort of space pirates who have managed to obtain the Genesis plans, and they're going to sell it, big old air quotes there, sell it to the Klingons. She unfortunately saw the Genesis plans, and it is unfortunate, as Krug says to her, and he kills his own lover out of the necessity of honor but before being dispatched the two share a moment of understanding and i find this especially scary because her willingness to die it's it's like an inversion of spock's dying to save the mini on the enterprise she dies for the greater good of the ultra-violent war chief what's going on here is definitely against treaties This, this could be considered an act of war he's obviously acting outside of the greater Klingon military empire. He's going after Genesis because he assumes it to be a weapon of mass destruction, which we learned it could be used for. But he doesn't even flinch. He destroys what we're shown to be something that obviously was compassionate to him, something that mattered to him. But this is the Klingon way. This is how fierce the Klingon warriors are, and this is what matters the most to them is the utmost respect of honor. But we know thankfully from Khan, that in the wrong hands, Genesis is very dangerous. I just said that. I mean, that's really the emphasis throughout the entirety of Wrath of Khan. Yes, it can create life, but it can end life. And that is why it was named Genesis. Not even really cleverly so, but it's very poignant. There's a reason behind all of it. And I think mainly it's so you don't have to do a lot of thinking. You don't have to really get too deep into the concepts. It can make life or it can destroy life. It just depends on who has it. So after the Klingons are properly introduced, we return to the core story where the Enterprise heads back to port. Here we really get to see some scales, like, for example, how small and old and almost insignificant the Enterprise is compared to the, the new, big, grand technology that's available. Also, I'm pretty sure the massive starbase that we see is the same model from part one. And by this point in the series, it becomes pretty fun just looking for props and models that have been used in in previous films that are repainted or changed into something else. I really think the Klingon Bird of Prey we see here has been used as several other ships in different parts of the series. And a lot of this stuff, if you pay attention, goes on forward all the way up into things like Star Trek Nemesis in the 2000s. A lot of things are rehashed and used in Next Generation and Voyager and so on and so forth and all the other series that I can't name And here, we learn upon our hero's arrival, quote-unquote, home, that the Enterprise is going to be decommissioned and the crew will be assigned new jobs. This is heartbreaking for Kirk. He just lost Spock, and now he's losing his ship. But I feel this also allows us to acknowledge that the Enterprise and its crew are really nothing special. There are tons of other ships, there's tons of other captains, and, and they're doing the same thing that the Enterprise does. And for example, now there's a whole Star Trek series about the original Captain Pike. You've got the pilot episode where Pike is the captain of the Enterprise, and so now they've made this canon that previously, before Kirk taking it over, it had an entirely different crew save for Spock and was going on pretty much the same missions. We kind of have this godly um, like idolatry toward Kirk and, and specific captains like Picard and others throughout the series, but Starfleet is a, a massive sprawling thing so there has to be many other captains doing many other things and we are just happened to be focusing on Kirk and company and the crew of the enterprise but this really lets us see the overall mind of what the Federation is the ship is 20 years old you've been around for a really long time you guys are getting old we're just kind of you know gonna out with the old and with the new but I do have a, a little bit of an issue with this Because in the very first movie, Star Trek, the motion picture, we're led to believe that the Enterprise has been refitted with all these awesome new technical gadgets, and it's ready for another 20 years in space, and it gets damaged, obviously, in the Wrath of Khan, and now it's ready to be decommissioned? So what is it? And this film takes place directly after Wrath of Khan. I'm not certain the difference between Part 1 and Wrath of Khan. It could be a couple months, maybe a year? It doesn't seem like it was a great deal of time, so really not that much to have further wear and tear on the Enterprise, but it doesn't matter. The, 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 semantics, goddammit. Keep getting into weird fucking semantics on this episode. But there is a reason for all of it. There needs to be an emphasis on the Enterprise being a character of its own, and the it's, it's old, it's a wounded character. Throughout Wrath of Khan, Kirk was having a struggle with feeling old, and at the end of the movie he says, I feel young. So though he's battle-damaged, his ego is bruised, he's pained as well as all of his crew for losing essentially all of their best friends he's still old in the eyes of the federation the ship is still old in the eyes of the federation and all of them despite their 20 years of service are i guess you could say antiquated so that's that's a good term to to use they're antiquated out with the old and with the new and it's made clear then also that they are forbidden at any point to go to genesis to talk about genesis it's another smack in the face for kirk the excelsior is the future and this is the new federation starship were shown the excelsior it's got transwarp drive and all the bells and whistles it's stronger harder faster, Wonder,
0: better, faster
1: stronger. it's the future and what would it service by letting kirk even go back to enterprise or anyone else outside of a science unit it needs to be studied and at this point uh, nobody needs to know about it because it can be used as a weapon But before the crew learns all of this, as they are docking, an energy reading is detected from Spock's quarters, which has been sealed upon his demise. And this is where we return to the actual point of the movie. We vary and differ from it many, many times. There's, like, tons of side quests, I guess you could say. The search for Spock. Kirk finds Doc McCoy lingering in the shadows of Spock's quarters, begging to be taken home. And what does all this mean? Well, I guess we're going to find out at some point. This movie has a lot of horror elements that i think play off really really nicely for example kirk finding mccoy and he's almost like a ghost it's this really moody scene you go into spock's quarters and it's it's cast in shadows and the room is decorated with a lot of spock's personal artifacts religious things vulcan things and you have this ghost really haunting the room and you have to remember But this is Leonard Nimoy's very first film, so I feel a lot of these elements are impressive that he managed to include so many expansive things aside from just science fiction and action or adventure. And I think it really brings a a thoughtful space. I think it puts us, if that makes sense, in a very thoughtful space when it comes to what we're being presented with. And here we really get to see some of the acting chops of William Shatner, along with DeForest Kelly, because you find out that it is McCoy sitting in the shadows. You can sense fear, you can sense awe as Kirk enters the room, and then when we're presented with DeForest Kelly, it it really does seem like it's Spock. And he begins begging Kirk, he needs to go home, he needs to go to a place called Mount Saleya, which is on Vulcan. So what happened in part two when Spock grabbed Bones and said, Remember, did he transferred his essence, his soul, essentially, to bones? Yes. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's exactly where this is going. But of course, we don't know this yet. I mean, I feel it's obvious, but it's not straight-up said until Spock's father interrupts a really cool party and everyone's wearing amazing costumes, especially Sulu's. The Genesis planet is forbidden. The crew has no ship. A rogue Klingon has taken the Genesis plans. Spock's soul is living inside of McCoy and somehow merging with him, what else could possibly happen? So. Much. More. Why? Why not? I mean, I personally wouldn't have lived by that philosophy, but that's what Harv and Leonard Nimoy lived by. Let's just do some stuff. And I don't mean that in an insulting manner, or maybe I do. I like the movie, and this becomes a hard place for me, because I don't know yet, or or going through this series, what my favorite is. I don't know my emotions on all of them, but what I do know is I enjoy this movie, no matter how muddled it is, and no matter what my complaints are. I really want you, the audience listening to this, to keep that in mind, that I do like the movie. So when I'm complaining, I'm complaining with a grain of salt, but I'm also doing it because... Well, that's what we do on the show, you know, talking about movies. Do you just want to hear me talk about, you know, at the beginning of the movie, they went to space, and then they find Spock, and then they save him, and then there's... Kind of talk about something that I hope is interesting and is still progressive. You know, there's thousands of reviews of this movie. It's been out since 1984. It's very well accessible, so attempting to do this, I'm hoping at least at some point to have a different train of thought or offer a different train of thought. And we've spent enough time talking about that, so let's just talk about the movie. So we rehash what the Genesis program is capable of doing with the Klingons and-
0: What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level into life-generating matter of equal mass. Stage one of our experiments was conducted in the laboratory. Stage two of the series will be attempted in a lifeless underground. Stage three will involve the process on a planetary
1: side. Proved to exist as a weapon of mass destruction used for Federation imperialism and that they, the Federation, will use this Genesis device to destroy them. So we can't just fucking search for Spock. We have to deal with all this aggression and bullshit. So the Klingons decide to head to the Genesis planet to act. ...for the preservation of our race, as Krug says, and sees the Genesis device as the ultimate weapon for the Klingon Empire. So that's gotta be the whole story, right? Right? No. Because we still don't know shit about Spock. <laughs> At all. We don't know anything. We know that his spirit and that his soul is is has been transferred to McCoy. That's what we know. All this stuff gets set up way before we even establish what the fuck is going on with Spock... And this is what I mean by muddled. There's just so much going on and all the stories are really good, but they seem crammed into place. And I think a much more simplistic and efficient story could have been told, whether it be about how unstable Genesis is and it become a story more about right and wrong. And we could still include a lot of the aspects and themes that happen in this movie, or it could have been a revenge story that solely focuses on some of the things that will happen later on that we're going to get to but all of them crammed together they are intricate and all of the things play off one another and eventually work for the long run of the movie but they all don't work that well and it just becomes so winded we're not even into the big adventure that's what harv bennett wanted this movie to be a big space adventure a big buckaroo bonsai adventure and we've not even gotten there yet because all of this stuff has to be set up beforehand to establish how the adventure can even take place and that's just, I'm not going to say bad writing, I'm not going to call Harve Bennett a bad writer, but it's a lot of back writing, and it's a lot of, I think, fan service. I think a lot of things are enthusiastically placed in, and they all have a good heart. And what I mean by that is all the things are placed into this movie with a good heart, you know, the reasoning as to why they were placed in, but it just isn't beneficial to the overall story. And... I know it must not sound like I like the movie, but goddammit, I'll repeat myself. I do. I do like the movie. It's just so muddled. I'm going to keep using that term. And to reiterate, I just feel the core story, searching for Spock, could have been told a lot more simplistically. But that's not what we got. And now, we go to Genesis. We get to check in with David, Captain Kirk's son, who we were introduced to in the last film. And Lieutenant Savick, who has changed actors and is now being played by Robin Curtis. Now, on the last episode, we were discussing Wrath of Khan. I I brought up the actor change, and I, I said something around the lines of, you know, I just think it's a shame, blah, 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 that the tone and all this changed. I've sat down and I've gone back through this film, and I, I now being able to judge Search for Spock and having a comparison against this and Wrath of Khan, I think Kirstie Alley does certainly offer something with the character. But overall, we explore Savic much more, and I, I really like Robin Curtis, and it kind of reminds me of what I like to call the Donna situation. Lara Flynn Boyle, Maura Kelly, Twin Peaks, one is far superior than the other. And it's not Lara Flynn Boyle. When you say Donna, I don't see her, despite the fact that Kelly only played Donna briefly in Firewalk with me. It's all a big Twin Peaks reference, talking about David Lynch's Twin Peaks here, by the way. So you've got the establishing role of Kirstie Alley. Her portrayal of Savick is very cold. When we move into Robin Curtis's portrayal of Savick, there's a little bit more fluency and, I think, naturality to the character, and it's just how it was written for this role, and and it was known. Kirstie Alley just wanted an obscene amount of money for this role. So it was turned down. Leonard Nimoy went out of his way and found somebody that I think is really accessible. I think you can easily get over that it's a different actress when you're presented with Savick and the reintroduction of her character with David. So upon further investigation into the Star Trek series, I like Robin Curtis. I like Kirstie Alley too. There's just a little bit more of an unfriendly cold touch to what she brought to the table as Savick, as to where Robin Curtis isn't so much friendlier, but her Vulcan mannerisms, I guess, seem more... logical. Hey. Yeah. That makes sense. It's all about that logic. So, Lieutenant Savick and David are studying the Genesis planet, and they are on board a Starfleet ship. We get to see a lot of Starfleet ships. We get to see a lot of spaceships in general in this movie. At the beginning, we've got the Excelsior. A few scenes before this, we got to see the giant starbase and the Excelsior, and you see the Enterprise, and now we get to see another Federation starship, and all of them progressively are kind of like knockoffs. Every like you, you really focus on the Enterprise, and that's our ship. That's where we've got our spirit aligned to. That's our home team sort of thing. It's who we're rooting for. So when we see other ships, they all kind of are, to me, kind of goofy knockoffs of what we would expect the dollar store version of the Enterprise to be. We also have a lot of time on Earth in this movie, which I find a bit strange, but we'll talk about that in a little while. So at this point, we begin to get really delivered into what's going on with this story. Savick is doing a scan of the planet, and it reveals a life form. Now, do we remember what Genesis does? And where does Spock's body land? On Genesis? Uh Uh-huh. So, now, we can finally search for Spock, right? Theoretically. Theoretically, we can finally search for Spock. Because there's more stuff that needs to happen. Why? Well, uh, Harv Bennett had a lot of ideas. And nobody told him no, I guess? I don't... Seems seems like what it is. So the three central characters of this series have, have yet to even get any focus. We just have to pile on more stuff before we can even adventure. And it really is a bit tedious. Here, we leave David and Savik, who are hot to trot, to get onto Genesis and look for this life form and go to Kirk's party. And this is what I mean by it weird this being on Earth. We go to Captain Kirk's party, and it's in his apartment in San Francisco, and in the background you've got this giant window, and it's just you know the, the Golden Gate Bridge, the city itself is lingering and you've got this kind of futuristic backdrop that if you squint you can kind of see and it just seems distant it seems strange itself that the series that i believe the original show itself never once goes back to earth suddenly we're spending time on earth. incoming
0: transmission is President
1: of the United Federation of Planets, Anne E. Rection. A terrorist faction from beyond our solar system is threatening the entirety of Earth unless we
0: correctly answer their question. They have developed a doomsday device that will blow up our planet if the answer is incorrect. You are our only hope. The pressure is on for this round of Keith David, Cooper, DeForest Kelly, or William Shatner. And remember, in space, no one can hear you scream. Arizona farmer Walter Kobe and his wife Birch have a problem on their hands. One of their cows was killed by a creature, but they have no idea what the beast could have been. So they consult local veterinarian, Dr. Robert Hansen, who becomes puzzled and calls in scientist Diane Ashley. Eventually, the duo discovers that oversized spiders are invading the small town, putting the entire population in danger as a county fair begins. Who plays the local veterinarian, Dr. Robert Hanson? Is it William Shatner? Oh, Or is it D. Forest Kelly? Holy smokes, put me in the oven and bake it, 350 until amazed, it's William Shatner. Thanks for playing another stop. Drop, shut him down, open up shop. Rest in peace, DMXingly, good round of DeForest Kelly or William Shatner. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. Now, back to Hank.
1: And I think it helps for us to relate to the characters, that all of them not only are detached right now, I mean, I I would really assume they're all just out of place, they don't know what's going on, there's not a necessity for them, they might not be needed anymore, and they are still leering and weak and broken over what has happened with Spock. All of them are mourning the loss of their friends, and possibly mourning the loss of their career, and their ship, and their future, because that really remains uncertain at this point. And here we learn what's going on with Spock. whose father, Sarek, who is the ambassador between Vulcan and the Federation, kind of crashes Kirk's party. And we learn the vital information that Spock's soul is in the body of Bones, and that they have to take Bones to Vulcan to fix the entire mess. But they have no ship, and let's not forget about the Klingons. And you just know some shit's gonna go down on the Genesis planet. You know it's going to get bad. But I will say it's pretty cool seeing Sarek, Spock's father. He is a character that I believe shows up one time on the show, so just like the Klingons, there really was no... Character there really was no background it was someone that was acknowledged and we knew that they were a Vulcan But we don't even really know much about the Vulcans at this point when this movie came out There wasn't a great deal of history all of the things we know now that are canon and from novels and magazines and backwriting, all of that commonplace things just didn't exist So Sarek being introduced as a character that has seemingly emotion Who knows if he's actually committed to the kulinar? but he seems rather upset about what has happened with his son, and he's very accusatory toward Kirk for letting what we will learn is not just a soul, but Spock's soul seemingly go to waste. We learn that it's not just a soul. We learn that Spock's Katra is inside of McCoy, and we learn to understand what exactly that is, and now we know what has to be done. And you would think things would be fairly clean cut from here on out. But the adventure that Harv wrote doesn't really even begin until like the 40 or 50 minute mark into this movie. So we spend so much time in the first half setting up the second half that it just becomes exhausting following all the excessive drama. We had enough with with Spock dying. But more and more and more and more and more. It's just going to keep coming our way. Via this meeting with Sarek, Kirk figures out Spock is joined with Bones, and now we have something. We know there has to be some form of Spock still alive, quote-unquote alive. Everything that is not of the body. That's what McCoy has. That's what a Contra is. Absolutely everything that is not of the body. The only way for both Spock and Bones to find peace is on Mount Saleya on Vulcan, a place pretty hard to get to when you don't have a spaceship. Determination. Love. Hope. We have some drastically different themes from when we started this movie. So let's kinda just jump into warp speed here and shoot through some of this plot. David and Savik are cleared to beam down to Genesis, where they find Spock's coffin is empty, but the planet is changing quickly. Organisms grow at an alarming rate. The planet itself is morphing and growing constantly. Unstable, we could say. Very, very, very unstable. Long story short, Spock has been reborn, Kirk has to steal his ship, and David is just like his father. All the things happening on Genesis are because David used some questionable materials to create Genesis itself. He cheated, just as his father did with the Kobayashi Maru. All these things are exhaustive, but they do have a point. But I'm telling you, a much more simple point surely could have been told. Okay, so, Kirk is gonna get the crew together... Steal the Enterprise, take Bones to Vulcan, and peace for all. Right? Wrong. Don't forget about the Klingons. Now, at this point of the movie, one of my favorite scenes happens. Bones is in a bar trying to find some space pirates to take him to Genesis for some reason or another. <laughs> Spock's Contra knows that his body lives again on the planet. But the acting here is, is really why I cherish this scene. It's just wonderful. D. Kelly is so swift, and he perfectly achieves the mannerisms that Leonard Nimoy was able to with the character of Spock, while still combining it with his own mannerisms that he has brought to the table with the character of McCoy. And it's just, it's transcendental, and you really get to see a powerhouse performance here, and you get to see some elegance and eloquence from this actor. I think. DeForest Kelly really is a star when it comes to this series, and, of course, Shatner's accused so constantly of not being a very good actor, but I, in a scene that's going to come up soon that we'll discuss, really beg to differ with Star Trek III as as a prominent piece of his his work. Shatner has chops, he just doesn't always use them. Kelly, on the other hand, a very humble actor, a very soft-spoken man in general, was able to channel a lot of ferocity, and this sequence in the bar really shows that it's just a real delight to watch it's something really pleasurable when you are gaining interest in the series i guess i could say so a federation security officer overhears all of this and arrests bones and throws him in jail and now finally Harve bennett's adventure story starts to take off a little bit i mean at least the thrusters are activated we'll be taking off Maybe. Soon. No, we will. Trust me. It's okay. I'm just yanking your chain. I'm just yanking your chain. You know, the first film, Star Trek The Motion Picture, is pretty open and closed. Wrath of Khan itself is pretty open and closed. But when you move into the search for Spock, it's where things become exploratory and a lot of the writing itself is exploratory and hypothetical because you don't know what's going to work you don't know what's going to stick with the fans and i said this earlier but nobody knew each time a movie was made if they were going to make another one afterward if there was going to be a progression with star trek the series ended in 1969 and the initial movie didn't come out until 1979 now we're in 1984 and things really haven't caught on you know, there are fans, people are interested in it. There are Trekkies, there are Trekkers, there are, are diehards that really love the series, but it hasn't become as universal and loved as it is right now. And, you know, and this is as it's being recorded and released the year 2021, and Star Trek, I would say, is, is widely loved by, I'd say, nearly everybody. I mean, it's neither here nor there. Goddamn semantics again. The whole point of this episode is going to come down to the over-explanation of semantics, which I swear fucking Star Trek 3: The Search for Spock, that's truly what it is, an over-explanation of semantics. Boom, we're done. Ah, unfortunately. Well, maybe not. I say unfortunately, but somebody out there could be enjoying this. Who am I to judge myself on my own show and my own work? I guess I am the ultimate judge of all. <laughs> God damn semantics! We are so off point. Back to Star Trek. Oh, and not to toot my own horn, but I just hope you people out there note my professionalism that I no longer am calling it Star Trek. It only took one episode for me to learn Trek, not hard. I'm gaining a stronger grasp of the English language every single day. Soon, I'll be unstoppable. So now, the boys have got to break bones out of the Hooskow and then steal the Enterprise and zoom back into space. Sweet. Finally. Something's going on. But wait... What about those Klingons? We can't forget about the Klingons. Let us never forget about the Klingons. So after a fun and pretty humorous jailbreak sequence where Sulu gets to kick some ass Don't call me Tiny. We learn more concerning McCoy, Spock's Contra, and what needs to be done next. All this seems simple enough, but overcomplication is around every single corner in this movie. Back on Genesis, Savik and David continue searching until finally we get the big reveal of young child Spock. It's not as cute and cuddly as, let's say, an Ewok, but it's still pretty amazing. It's still pretty heartwarming. We saw him die, but here he is, all new. But he's missing his soul, his being, his all but the body. So without the Katra, the body is just an empty shell, essentially without emotion, without the divinity of wrong or right. And I don't mean that in a religious standpoint, but I really think at this point in society that a lot of people don't know wrong from right, they inherit wrong from right. Not a book that tells you wrong from right, but What wrong from right actually is. Without all of this, it's just this fuming, kind of empty, confused vessel that really can't take anything or give anything. It's horrifying. So the puzzle pieces kind of start forming and moving together. At this point, we know. We get the Contra out of McCoy and into Spock. But still, those got. Damn, Klingons are in the movie lurking somewhere just to pop out and overcomplicate things at the last minute. Now the movie becomes a futuristic buddy comedy slash road movie where they steal the Enterprise and they manage to escape because Scotty sabotaged the Excelsior's fancy transwarp drive. And there's a scene before all of that happens where Scotty is dealing with the captain of the Excelsior, and you don't get a lot of crudeness, you don't get a lot of blue humor, nor really adult humor. There's some scenes of sexual tension, or innuendos from our beloved Captain Kirk, but there's not a lot of attitude, and here you got a really great placement of attitude where Harve Bennett finally had the availability to say something a little crude in the script, and Scotty... Begrudgingly takes the captain of the excelsior's orders, but not before saying up a shaft just sounded like Shrek didn't even sound like Scotty at all But still I cherish that sheen. but still I cherish that sheen cherish that sheen cherish Oh man Cherish that scene Every episode Becoming like a trademark or something Almost like I might be doing it on purpose No, not me This couldn't possibly be an act couldn't possibly be an act this all has to be reality uh where were we star trek 3 the search for spock oh yeah now everyone is bubbly and excited and the film's tone has drastically changed even more from where we began and where we were just a few moments ago something to bring up and note here is by this point in the film, I think part three manages to do something that the previous movies lacked, and that is actually exposing us to the crew. Wisefully so, Nimoy gives each character a bit of time to shine on screen, and he lets the actors really perform. For example, the Mr. Adventure scene with Uhura. Notably, George Takei, D. Kelly, and Nichelle really have some time to shine, and at the beginning of the film, you get a little bit with Chekhov, but it's refreshing and nice to know that everyone else has emotion. They're not just one off characters that are filling background space. I said it earlier, but you just really get terrific and tremendous acting from DeForest Kelly in this movie. This really is, uh, this, this may be the, the strongest performance in his career in Star Trek in general, just because of the duality of the character, him having to have Spock. And the actions of Spock while still the core of him being who he is. I mean, imagine having to be the carrier, the bearer of somebody's soul and having that inside yourself and knowing what it is and how precious and important it is while still trying to maintain the relevancy of your own thoughts and your own soul. These two things conflicting. And knowing the history between McCoy and Spock, though McCoy cares for him, the two usually are at odds and they're arguing constantly. They have very, very different systems of beliefs. So these two inside each other, it's just got to be tearing him apart. And I really think it's brought on screen, and it's brought on screen beautifully by Kelly. He really does a beautiful job in this movie. I love it. its It might be my favorite thing about this is DeForest Kelly and what he brought to us on screen. All right. The Enterprise is stolen, and our heroes begin their journey to Genesis. Finally. And now, back to the mini-adventures of David and Savick. The planet is rapidly changing, the Genesis planet that is. The seasons are intensifying, it's becoming more and more unstable, and child Spock is growing and changing just as rapidly. And all hell begins to break loose here. Those tricky Klingons re-enter the story. The Grissom, which is the ship that Savak and David came from, the, the Starfleet ship, it's destroyed by Krug and company after their cloaked bird of prey snuck upon them. And this is something that, again, is new to this series. We're really exploring the Klingons, and their ships have a capability of being cloaked up until they have to attack, something that really can cause a problem, obviously, because everybody on board this ship is now dead, including the captain, the sole survivor, Savik and David, who are stranded on the Genesis planet with Spock. And soon... They will be in even greater peril as the Klingons will shortly be there to take them hostage. And I really enjoy what we see on the Genesis planet. And I wish that there could have been more time spent on that planet. And it's, a, it's just also rushed feeling. Which sucks because Savick and David both are really interesting characters. And I think we really deserved more time with them. I think not just Savick, but David. It's the son of Captain Kirk. And I think we could have used this character much more intimately. I think we could have brought something more than the emotions we end up getting, which are just, I guess, very basic emotions. Anger and then regret is is something that Kirk will feel later on. But Merritt Buttrick, it was a terrific actor. And I know I keep saying, everybody, everybody I bring up, they're so terrific, they're so beautiful, they're so great. Wrath of Khan, you're exposed to a much more angry version of David, but in this film we get to explore who he is, and we get to explore the similarities between him and his father, and I think all of that really, really works. And I, I do think it's a shame that the character didn't get more screen time, the character didn't get to be more intricate. And that goes for Genesis itself, the, the whole idea of the planet and its progression and its changing. And of course a lot of this comes down to budgetary problems and how the movie was shot, and a lot of it... A lot of it. This is way before CGI. So everything was shot on sound stages. Everything was models. Uh, A lot of the graphics, early Pixar graphics that were created from Wrath of Khan are reused in this movie. A lot of rehashing former stuff. It's all budgetary issues. So it's, you know, if wishes and nuts were candy and butts or whatever that stupid fucking saying is, that entire spiel, that's just, I would like it more. But... Budgetary problems don't come down to David and Savick's characters being fleshed out a little bit better, having just a more expansive part, having a bigger role in the movie. We focus and we're jumping from story to story to story. We really don't get time to know anybody but the characters we already know. I mean... I, why is Christopher Lloyd's crew so vengeful? Why is he out past the demilitarized zone doing all these awful cheeky shenanigans? Where did he even learn about the Genesis program? There's, there's just so much that could have been brought forward and, to use the term again, fleshed out and, and written into the fucking story outside of this just kind of jumping around thing that we got muddled. I think muddled is really the best term for it. It's chaotic and it's stressful, but it does pay off. And I think there's a point and poignancy to why it's chaotic and stressful aside from kind of loose writing and, hey, we got the money to make a sequel, we're going to make a sequel, let's do this, everybody is here, let's rock and roll. And that's speculative. I don't know how much truth is in that besides my opinion and my, my feeling of the matter. And I'll stress again for like the 19th million time on this episode, I like this movie. I like Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So I'm just trying to... I don't know, I've come at this from every angle. I want to look at it from, from all available angles. Not just, I like the movie, and this is why I like the movie. I'm offering you guys... everything. Maybe. I don't know. I have no clue what I'm talking about. The previous two films were heavy in philosophy, and the philosophical aspects begin to re-enter the movie, the series itself, with the question of ethics involved in the creation of Genesis. Now... It's been philosophical before that with these questions of life and death and the Contra and the soul and rebirth, and we could even say an ethical question is brought forward with Kirk stealing the Enterprise for the mission that they are going to go on, rebirthing Spock, kind of. But it's just more stuff we don't get to focus on enough. All of it's presented to us, and like, yeah, okay, so David used unstable materials to make this planet, now it's literally morphing and terraforming itself to a point that it's going to explode and become an atomic kind of a weapon there are some massive ethical faults that we really should be discussing and bringing up here in the philosophy of why he did this the same thing that came with what we got in the last movie in the kobayashi maru and us learning the fact that until that point the point of spock's death kirk had never had to face a a a no-win situation But we learn with all of that, I don't believe in a no-win situation. There may actually not be something like that if you persevere long enough. You might lose the battle, but you might not lose the war. That sort of mentality. But none of that's really brought to the surface with Search for Spock. It's hinted at, it's grazed upon, we don't really go below the surface with it, and it is a shame. We learn that the planet is aging, and it's aging so quickly it's only a matter of hours before it will destroy itself. More danger. Constant danger. Everything is dangerous at this point. It doesn't matter which character, it's all danger. Everybody's experiencing danger.
0: Danger! Will Robinson, danger!
1: And that's a big part of an adventure story. That's a big part of an action story, but I think we're focusing way too much on the danger instead of the representation of these characters, problem-solving, how the characters are going to make it through this, and the overall emphasis of... You do something, there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be a result. There's going to be an effect for it. And we just are now focusing on the much more action-packed basis of things. And it is what it is. Let's just put it that way. It is what it is. As Genesis shifts, so does Spock, who is now an adolescent, and he begins to suffer from something called far, which is just puberty. But it apparently is something that happens to a Vulcan every seven years of their life. And Savik, being a Vulcan recognizes this, and the two have a rather intimate moment. She guides him through the agony with what is essentially foreplay, some sort of Vulcan pleasure. I wouldn't say a mating ritual, but maybe the precursors to a mating ritual, something which later on was going to be used as a baby Spock option in future films, if of course they managed to make future films, but that was eventually dropped. And when we do part four, it'll be discussed again, but this is actually why Savik ends up staying on the planet Vulcan, because she was supposed to be pregnant with Spock's child and would be staying with his mother and just none of that came to fruition interesting little factoid though the enterprise with our crew of heroes aboard approaches Genesis but it doesn't read signs of the Klingons Chekov is sure he saw something but they can't be sure Kirk begins to hail the Grissom to no avail and by now Krug has found Savik, David and young Spock so it's all about to really 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 go to hell in a handbasket David and Savick, though, hear Kirk calling the Grissom, and there is some hope that is now bestowed politely onto all of us. But just for a few moments, we build this hope so rapidly throughout the movie, and by now I think we should be experienced and versed enough with what the story Harv is telling us, and Leonard Nimoy is directing that. It's never futile to have hope, but don't put any money on it. Every few minutes, something drastically changes tone-wise with this movie. The Klingon Bird of Prey sneaks up and damages the Enterprise, but not before our heroes begin to devise a plan. It goes back and forth. The Bird of Prey is damaged, but the Enterprise is damaged even more so, and now it all becomes very, very clear what is going to happen. In the last film, Spock died. He conveniently returns in this one, but it seems at this point we know a beloved character is going to be assassinated next, and it's the Enterprise. And I think that's a focal point. At the beginning of the movie, we express how wounded and old our crew is and how wounded and old the Enterprise is to the point that it's going to be decommissioned. So if Kirk can't have it, no one can. And it's not just down to that, it's not vanity. There is an important reason as to why the Enterprise has to die. But just like Wrath of Khan, we kill off Spock to bring him back in the next movie. I think it should be understood. Despite how shocking it must have been when this movie came out that the Enterprise would be killed and destroyed, it's going to come back. We've established that with this series. If something dies, it will come back. Well, not always. And we'll talk about that in just a second heads butt as Krug and Kirk argue about acts of war and surrender, doomsday weapons and death. If Kirk doesn't bow to Krug, he will kill the hostages. Well, we know they're not going to go kill off Spock again. In fact, Kirk is given a chance to speak to Savick and learns for the first time that Spock actually is alive. So, again, reborn, rebirthed, whatever you want to call it. So we don't have to worry about Spock. We know that this is not going to happen. The Klingons choose Savick. But David dies a hero saving her. Captain Kirk's son. He told his father beforehand not to surrender. And he told him of his failure he explains genesis is dangerous and it doesn't work so just in a few seconds of this scene david comes to the realization it took his father half a lifetime to come forward with that he learns eventually at the end of wrath of khan and he admits to his faults but his valiance unfortunately leads to his demise his protection of savik leads to him being fatally stabbed by one of the klingons and this is now further motivation for kirk And now we have another sight we've never seen before, an additional thing. This movie's filled with stuff that's brand new to us as an audience, uh, experiencing these characters, experiencing Star Trek. We see a broken Kirk. We see a man whose spirit has completely been defied. When Spock died, he managed to have some form of composure because he was the captain and he still had all of these people depending on him. And they had just ended battle. They still had to get to safety. They still had to ensure the life and safety of the many and not the one. But now he's just at complete loss. He lost his ship, he lost his best friend, and now his son, his son, that he hardly knew, he hardly even got to, not work with, but love, live with, experience, understand, know who they were. He is gone. And this is something we've never seen. He stumbles back, and this is just, again, brilliance with Shatner as an actor. He stumbles backward and falls into his chair and hits the ground, and it's just this shocking moment. Our Captain Kirk, our hero, this devastatingly brilliant man who has never backed down and never had a moment of weakness at this point in time. We don't know how to feel. And it's it's beautifully heartbreaking. It's so well done. It's very eloquent. And to remind the audience again, this was Leonard Nimoy's very first motion picture. And the combination of, of all the actors, of course, really makes something important here but you got to look at these guys they've all known each other since 1966 or so and now all of a sudden Leonard Nimoy stepping into the director's chair I'm sure a lot of people were very hesitant and I'm sure there were some tempers and some anger and some feelings of betrayal of well, why does he get to do this who is he to be calling the shots and somehow some way everyone let their egos go they all came together amicably and this really is I think a, a driving scene to the talent behind Leonard Nimoy, but the talent behind everyone involved, Harv Bennett, the, the the collective force of all of these people coming together. Because the scene is just tremendous. The amount of emotion behind William Shatner's performance. This is really one of like the top performances for William Shatner, in my opinion, because you really feel it. You feel the woe. You feel the suffering. And he's so upset. You you Klingon bastards. You killed my son. You Klingon bastards. Bastards! You killed my son! It just, it breaks your fucking heart.
0: Oh. on, bastard! You killed my son!
1: And we don't even know David. I was talking about this earlier. The character doesn't really get any definitive nature, and some will say that it expressly was created as just a plot point and something to give Kirk some emotion when it comes to wrath of khan but i don't care if it's a character in the series and it isn't articulated upon and i feel it needed to be so then that's my fucking opinion and you are listening to death by dvd which is my show so I guess you're here for my opinion. And I feel that David definitely needed more articulation and deserved it. I like the character and I like Merritt. I think he's a great actor. It's a shame that his that his flame was extinguished. The death of David has caused Kirk to lose his balance, but not for long. The bulls waddle, but they don't fall down. This moment though reminds us again of Kirk's humanity and that he isn't a superhero, that just like us, he feels just like us, he has woe. But he has to stand up in this moment. It might not be a full crew, but it's even maybe more important now because these people that have joined with him have risked their own lives, their integrity, their careers, their katras and souls and everything in between for the greater good of what they believe to be happening, bringing back Spock. It's very biblical, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to have this like transient emphasis that it's religious, that you have to look at it that way, but... Obviously, using the words Genesis from the last film and bringing it into this and the whole life and death and rebirth, I think you can't help but look into a lot of maybe Abrahamic-based religions, and I'm not saying it's specifically Abrahamic-based religions that involve uh, rebirth or things like that, but... A lot of the culture, a lot of the things that are associated with the Vulcans, I think, certainly come from Leonard Nimoy and really come with a Judaic base to them. And a lot of the mysticism and things like Kabbalah, I think, are really brought forward into what we're dealing with here. And you have to kind of look at, uh, you know, the story of Christ being reborn, Jesus Christ, that he died, and three days later he came back, and he goes to heaven and ascends and all this stuff. And you look at the story and the transition between is what is happening with the characters. It's not so much this... Over-omnipotent feeling, you know, like V'ger was sort of this omnipotent god, and in part five we're going to talk more about a god-like entity, but here it's more of the Holy Ghost being reborn, but not for a religious purpose, and I know this sounds like insane, winding, ranting, but... It all comes from, I think, a relevant place, and I think a lot of the culture of what Leonard Nimoy grew up in and what were his beliefs and what he acknowledged came forward and helped mold all of this to char- character and helped mold all of this together and the characters and kind of brought a divinity forward. And there's a lot of mysticism to it. I think there's a lot of not just magical mysticism, but The mystery of the unknown, almost the fear of the unknown, because we don't understand anything when it comes to the Klingons, the Vulcans, we're human, so we can largely assume we understand what's going on between Kirk and McCoy and Sulu and blah blah blah, but when it comes to the mind and the culture and the spirituality and the background of the Vulcans and the Klingons, we have really no idea. But that's really beautiful, and a lot of that, if not all of it, comes down to... Leonard Nimoy really developing what we are going to see and what's going to happen and what we've been focusing on through this movie is the spiritual aspect that everything but the body can exist and prevail and live within the Vulcans if it's passed on to someone until finally I guess they can find some sort of infinite peace because we really don't know what's going to happen the whole point of this was to bring McCoy to Vulcan where they would be able to let Spock find peace and relieve McCoy of this. But we find out midway that there is a reborn Spock, and now all these puzzle pieces that are so distant are being forced and pushed together. But now it's war. It's all-out war. And this is what I mean by muddled, though. I mean, we already had plenty of motivation and story with the actual search for Spock, but now on top of that, the final part of the film will be a revenge story. We go from the wounded, sardonic, hurtful whiplashed feeling to the beginning of the movie and then we somehow go to a buddy comedy road movie that takes place into space and now it's finally a revenge film so many different directions it feels like a lot of cooks in the kitchen but there weren't there really weren't it was harv and Leonard. It's just so much plot, not enough focus on the life and death themes, the themes of rebirth, the philosophy, the spirituality, uh, all of that. It's just a lot of background concepts that somehow come forward and are pushed into our face, and that's kind of a shame, because I've said it many, many times, but I think there was a much more simplistic way the story could have been told, which essentially just would have been the search for Spock. So Kirk has lost his son, and it looks like the ship is next. Surrender your vessel, is Krug's command. You want it? Well, you got it. Kirk agrees and the Klingons prepare to board the Enterprise. There's only one option, no tricks. With one minute left, the self-destruct sequence to the Enterprise is activated. Code zero, zero, zero.
0: Destruct sequence completed and engaged. Awaiting final code for one minute countdown. Code zero. Zero. Zero.
1: On the tales of David's death, now the beloved Enterprise will join him in the great ether. With seconds to go, Kirk and company transport to the Genesis planet while the Klingons beam on board the Enterprise for an explosive treat. The ship blows spectacularly, killing all the Klingons on board. Kirk and company watches it burn on the atmosphere of the Genesis planet. Returning us to the somber, melancholic feeling established at the very start of the film. But here's something very beautiful is stated that I think helps us reconnect to the plight of our characters. Kirk asks maybe himself, but he says it aloud, What have I done? To where Bones replies, You did what you had to do. You did what you always do. You turned death into a fighting chance to live. And that really helps lift the dour mood. It's the end, but we know Kirk won't fail. He never fails. And now it becomes an action-packed, wild, wild, West-like fight for good versus evil. The planet is self-destructing, Spock is rapidly aging, so now our hero must take on the Heavy. It's the one thing left to do that we've neglected to bring up or show the entire movie, these two actually facing off against each other. And it's a dramatic battle. And it ends with our crew taking over the Klingon ship after Captain Kirk kicks Krug's ass. Literally kicks him right off a mountain into a river of hot lava. His son is dead, his ship is gone, but Kirk is a man of honor. And we take off to Vulcan as Genesis Explodes. the beauty all the things behind it it was to bring peace and harmony and to help but in the long run all that genesis was yearned for was evil was for power and was for power and the wrong reasons which i think is a sentiment we can look at in life in general and something i think cleverly added to this movie that no matter how good the intentions weapons still will always fall into the wrong hands or something like that i'm sure i could have said that more philosophically but that's what you're gonna get i mean to expand upon that a little bit more Just because it was made out of the good doesn't mean it's always for the good, and especially if you cheat to get something done, if you lie to get something done, rather. If you use unethical terms to get something done, that means you've never had to actually face the challenges it takes to do it the right way, which means that you're really not ready for what's going to happen. The lesson that Kirk learns in Wrath of Khan and David learns very, very quickly and unfortunately permanently and Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. I'm being a bit vague about the details here, but as we have explored Star Trek III, I feel we have been fairly thorough. Exasperatingly so, in fact. So here, I'd like to leave a little bit of the experience to you, the viewer, for when you watch this movie. It's the beginning of the final act, and you get to see the face-off between Christopher Lloyd giving just an exuberantly powerful and emotional, hard performance against Captain Kirk, against William Shatner, who's equally doing the same and it's something to take in for yourself. It's something to watch for yourself. So the experience is up to you. Let's move on to the end. <laughs> Using the Klingon ship, our heroes make it to Vulcan with Spock. And the planet is unique, and it's so mysterious. The Vulcans themselves are a mysterious and mystical people, and we now really get to complete the adventure with a unique and, and, and whimsical shroud of the Vulcans about us. Now, for the really hard part, How will they possibly show, for all intents and purposes, a soul being transferred from one man to a regenerated being of the soul's former body? You can't, like, just high-five. Or can you? We build up to an ornate and ancient ceremony filled with risk and danger that has only been done before in legend, the Vulcan High Priestess, played by Dame Judith Anderson. She is the Vulcan High Priestess, and she explains everything to us, and of course the Enterprise crew. McCoy, the son of David, keeper of the Katra. He accepts the danger, and that's what he's told. This could harm Spock, this could harm him, it could possibly kill them both, but he accepts almost instantly, with no hesitation. The dangers of the Katra ritual. It's for the one, for the many, it's for Spock, it's for Jim, it's for David. He chooses the danger, he accepts it. And it's not much of a high five, but after a few Klatu, Veratu, Niktus, close-up shots, some gongs going off, a little bit of mist, fog, and smoke, the ritual is over. And it would seem the mission has been achieved. Now the three main characters, finally, the trinity of the series, they get a moment together. Strangers in a strange land. Kirk and the crew have lost so much. Kirk especially. Spock's father, Sarek, reminds him of all of this, and our captain says, If I hadn't tried, I would have lost my soul. Our humbled hero has come so far from the first time we saw him in Star Trek The Motion Picture, an admiral hungry to get back to his work. I expressed in the last episode, he's somewhat like Wyatt Earp, a former lawman who laid down his guns and has now come back to reclaim them and venture deep into the unknown Wild West. But now it's different. He's become humbled and he's learned so much in this short period of time, even if it's just been two or three years from when we were first re-exposed to these characters from their previous adventures on the Enterprise in the original series, he himself has changed and evolved, just as everyone greatly has. I mean, McCoy has had somebody else's soul living inside of him. That's gotta change you. You'd think. And here, time freezes as Spock turns and advances toward the Enterprise crew, looking all of them over, each one of them thoughtfully looking back on him. What all of them have witnessed is so much more than what we even saw with the birth of this new life form in the first movie with V'ger transcending and becoming something completely new and, and being able to move into different realities and galaxies or whatever. We now have seen the rebirth, the, the the death and life and rebirth of someone. This is pretty amazing. Immaculate conception, all because of David, a gift to Kirk, a gift being his son, a gift being an extension of his soul and his reality that is now lost, that has managed to give the eternal gift of Returning the greatly acknowledged and admired in his own land, Spock, but somebody that is of the utmost importance to the storytelling and the emotion and soul of Star Trek. Spock stands for a moment and looks over everyone, but when he gets to Kirk, he questions him as, Why Why would you do this? Why did you do all of these things for me? My father has told me so much. And Kirk tells him, The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. And then it's time to turn on the waterworks. I got misty-eyed. You feel that burning in your nose? Spock remembers his death, and he remembers who his friends are. Oh, man, it feels so great. As a newcomer to this series, I get to this. You you watch this, and you experience it, and the end of this movie, I feel, is just so triumphant, and that overwhelming, warm feeling. He remembers who they are. After the grueling trek, literally, that was this movie, we had to go on this brutal adventure, and I really feel at the end of it, you and I and everyone that watches this, you feel like you were just as brutalized and wore and worn out, and you've just been dragged through the ringer, just like the crew of the Enterprise. Maybe the exasperating nature of how the story was told helps for that in the long run, but I don't think that's really a great excuse for how muddled the word of the episode, this movie is, Jim. Your name is Jim. I gotta tell you, those words alone make the movie for me. The gang is back. The boys are back in town, the boys are back in town. Joy, hope, excitement. The movie ends vastly different than we begin. And the adventure continues. So I rambled a lot. But hopefully, I've offered a new and interesting look into Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. By no means the worst of the series. That's part four. I told you I'd make that joke again. But I can understand why people have problems with it. I, myself, have problems with it. Regardless, I still enjoy the ride. And for the sake of this show, I hope you did too. I think as a directorial, it's a really interesting movie that needed a lot more polishing. And when we're looking at how... Star Trek was revived. By this point in time, it it was nowhere near as loved, and I, I brought this up a lot earlier in the show, than it is right now. So it was a very strange era, and I feel, for the most part, you had to do what you had to do to get the audience back on your side, to get these people to fall in love with Star Trek again. I love the introduction, really, for the most part, of what the Klingons are and their culture and how frightening these guys can be. And I love looking into Vulcan as a planet. uh, I love looking into the Vulcans as a people. The storytelling and how we transition from the absolute broken and weary travelers that we see at the beginning of this movie to the triumphant, no-fear, ready-for-tomorrow crew that we get at the end of this. Wanted criminals, outlaws... The good guys now, in the eyes of the Federation, more than likely, they're outlaws, really. Not only did they steal a ship, they blew it up, commandeered another one, and are now hiding on Vulcan. The adventure truly continues. What possibly could happen next to the crew of the Enterprise? Well, we'll find out on the next episode of Death by DVD. Boldly going nowhere, Death by DVD does Star Trek. Until then, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a date with the Hollow Deck. Me, Rebecca Romaine from the Rollerball movie, a 22 gallon barrel of chunky peanut butter, and a slip and slide. Be kind to each other and pleasant tomorrows. Adios.
0: Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning